Hey everyone and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be getting into episodes 277 through 283, which will be covering manga chapters 395 through 399. And yes, this is the most iconic One Piece moment in many people's mind as well as mine. Also, you may be wondering why this podcast covers all the way up to episode 283. It's because we get a few fillers that I'll kind of breeze right through at the end here. So fair warning, this is going to be a rather long episode as this is easily the longest script I've written at over 11 pages with normal episodes usually running between 7 and 8 pages. But I debated whether to split this episode, but I just said screw it and I actually put it all together because the episodes kind of work off each other. So I just made it the same. So this episode may run a little long, but I appreciate you sticking with it if you do. Anyways, let's get into the synopsis. So continuing with Robin's retelling of her past, Professor Clover discusses with the Gorose about their research findings and the Poneglyph as well as the Void Sentry and their connection to the world government. And at this point, the Gorose realize that the scholars of Ohara know too much and orders them to kill the scholars and unleash the Buster Call. Robin narrowly surviving this for the next 20 years, only to end up here in the NAS lobby. Now she needs to once and for all decide what she truly wishes for her life. Alrighty, so differences. There aren't very many differences in, in this set of episodes. So a couple of them are mostly in the past. So they don't really show the people of Ohara denying Robin entry onto the evacuation ship. And I'll go into more detail uh, through the episode breakdown later about this, as well as the fact that there is a part that they don't include from the manga where Robin actually tries to lift herself up onto the boat with her Hanahana powers, but it ends up freaking out and scaring the other passengers. And it also shows just how terrified Robin is when they recoil. And then when we get back to the present, the um, the moment where the drawbridge is lowered, in the manga, it actually shows uh, a shot of the Frankie family in sort of relief and celebrating at this. We don't get to see that here, um, as well as a couple other scenes with Baskerville that are moved to later um, once we get back from the fillers. So those scenes are eventually shown. They're just not here in this to sort of um, keep the pacing and timing. All right, so let's get into my thoughts on these episodes. So when we return to the island, it is in panic as all the citizens of Ohara race to get to the evacuation ships for their safety while the world government agents discover a poneglyph that the scholars have hidden in the tree of knowledge that they were using to conduct their research. And one embarrassing thing that I completely forgot in my mind was that until they mentioned it here, that I completely forgot that the Poneglyphs are virtually indestructible, which makes sense. Why Why else would they last so long? But I don't know, for some reason, I just completely lost track of that in my head as I've been reading One Piece for the last, like, God knows how many years. But <laughs> it's not anything huge or anything, but it's just like, oh, I kind of forgot that they were indestructible. Anyways, back to where we left off with Professor Clover and the Gorose as they begin to discuss the topic of what, you know, history people deserve to know and what should be kept hidden for the, quote, safety of the peace for society. The Gorose argue that the reason that researching into the history of the Void Sentry and the Poneglyphs could lead to awakening of the ancient weapons, but Clover counters saying that everyone has a right to know the truth about the history of the world, and that this is history that humans created, and they should accept and learn from it 
instead of fearing it, even the good and the bad. And this is an incredibly poignant message as well, as this is something that's debated in our real world all the time in Japan, as well as also being very applicable to my native country in the US. Japan has been known to shy away from teaching and acknowledging sort of their dark history to, you know, school children,、uh, especially concerning their involvement and atrocities that they perpetrated during World War II. And likewise, in the US, we're sort of in the midst at the time of this recording of a nationwide debate on teaching what's called critical race theory, which is the idea that we need to teach the true history of America's dark history in terms of slavery and, and systemic racism. And you have one side arguing that this needs to be taught in schools to show how this country was really created, as well as learn from the past and acknowledge you know, that while horrific things have been done in the past, if we don't accept that, And learn from them, we're doomed to keep repeating them. And the reality is, though, like the Goro say, the people in power try to suppress and cover up history that isn't convenient for them so that it doesn't threaten their standing and power. And I personally believe that we should learn about all the good and bad about history so that people can really learn from our past mistakes and not be forever ashamed of them, preventing us from taking responsibility and action to improve society, similar to how. Germany has handled its dark history and sort of the Nazi regime during World War II. They acknowledge and really work hard to sort of learn and improve from that. Anyways, enough sort of geopolitics and stuff like that, but let's get back to the story. So, Clover brings up a great point. It's not so much of what the Poneglyphs say, but why were they created in the first place and in the fashion they were? Why go to the trouble of inscribing all this information in such a cryptic way on indestructible stones, if not to protect it from some enemy? Which means that there was a legitimate threat already there before the void century. And this is where things get really spicy and kind of goosebump inducing. Clover puts it together that there seems to be a coincidence that the void century and the birth of the world government coincide at the 800 years mark. And so it can be surmised that whatever happened during the void century led to the creation of the world government. And what's more interesting is that there was once this island, the one that sought to create the Poneglyphs, was at war with, within an alliance of countries that would later become the world government. And the thing the world government seemed to fear the most of all about them was not their military might or their physical threat, but Clover specifically says the Existence and in particular the ideology of the island is what scared them the most, and that's the thing that they're trying to silence. Now, I'm not really going to get into spoilers or anything, but even where I'm at in the story in chapters 1053, or I guess episode 10, where are we? 1027 or something like that, there have been incredibly few details on this once prosperous kingdom, but it's always struck me as weird and significant that it's It's their ideology that they're most afraid of getting out to the world. Like, what kind of ideology would be that terrifying to the world government? Of course, my theory is that it has something to do with the will of D, which leads me down this path of thinking about Luffy and his ideology and philosophy of being the freest person in the world, which is why the world government feared Roger so much, because he actually achieved this to some extent by becoming the Pirate King. And I think this kingdom probably had a society and power structure that was much, much freer. And maybe some sort of more true and pure form of democracy where people weren't controlled and equal among each other, and that they figured out a way to live in peace and prosperity without creating these sort of oppressive power structures that the world government so wants to keep preserved. 
Of course, this is all just straight up conjecture in my head. I have really not much to base this on other than the information that we've been given here because I feel like that's literally the only, only information we've gotten about this mysterious kingdom this entire time. But man, I love this sort of mystery in this series. It feels so like taboo and forbidden that even me outside of the story thinking about it and theorizing about it kind of like makes me a little you know excited and, and and it's also really fun to sort of get that invested in it clover then attempts to say the name of this kingdom and i will and correct me if i'm wrong but some people have interpreted this scene as them have or clover having actually said the name but it's deliberately cut out from our ears and then that's why the gorose have shot them i always interpreted it as the Gorose shot him before he said it. Um, otherwise, the, you know, Spandine and everybody would would know that name, and it's like, why would they? Why would they risk having all those CP9 agents also and Marine soldiers know as well? So, I have to assume that the Gorose ordered Clover be shot before he got a chance to say the name. Anyways, the Gorose have had enough and order Spandine to eliminate him before he can actually say it. That's that's the way I'm thinking about it. Anyways, lamenting the fact that Ohara has learned too much and the mere knowledge of this kingdom's existence was already dicey, but the name is apparently a huge giveaway in terms of something. If that were to ever get out, it would cause a lot of problems for the Gorosei. So whatever this kingdom's name is, it's somewhat recognizable, which leads me to believe that it's something we've already heard or is somehow linked to something we and the characters of the world are familiar with. Again, I really don't have any idea what this could be. It could be Laftail, but Laftail got its name after this, so I don't know why it would really matter, but yeah, it is interesting. There's a lot of theories around about what this mysterious kingdom really is or what it represents. I'm not really going to get too much more into it other than what I've already said here. But yeah, this moment evokes very similar vibes to when Bellamere gets shot by Arlong down to the very similar shot composition. And one thing I always note about this moment is that the Gorose don't react like this sort of malevolent bad guy who's angry or relishes in this moment as it seems to really pain them to be forced to kill him and destroy the island. I never really knew how to take this moment because on the one hand, I believe that the Gorose are evil for the most part, but I also think that all five of them are incredibly intelligent people, and I suppose they don't relish in taking mass lives, or perhaps they felt it was a real waste to have to kill Professor Clover and the scholars of Ohara, considering that they mentioned the fact that they've contributed so much to the culture and society in large ways, and it pains them to lose a resource like that. I'm not sure... You know, you could definitely let me know what you, how you interpret this moment, but that's kind of how I see it. Not only that, but they now fear this information getting out so much that they order the CP9 to eliminate everyone on the island, letting no one off of it, while Spandine pulls out the golden Denden Mushi and initiates the Buster Call. So we finally get to see what the Buster Call actually does after having heard of it for so long now. I like the added little detail that on the other end of the golden Dendemushi is a silver Dendemushi who's a little older and has white hair. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. But with that, the library is, is set ablaze and the CP9 no longer care about suppressing the scholars and withdrawals since they know that with the buster call activated, no one on this island is getting out alive anyways. And most of the scholars rush to put out the fire, but Robin notices Olvia 
as she's taken away due to the fact that there is some sort of information that only she still knows that Spandine wants. And this, I never could figure out what it is. Um, I actually don't know what Olivia knows in addition. Maybe it's where Saul is. Um, that would be my only guess. Obviously, they, it's not as important enough because he gives up later, but... Robin starts to wonder if she's her mother, which is completely understandable given their incredible resemblance. In, and in the most heartbreaking way, she politely asks if she is her mom. And in order to protect Robin, Olvia has to lie and say that she has mistaken her for somebody else. Then it gets downright tear-jerking as she pleads with her to recognize her as she's grown up but has been awaiting her return this whole time and yelling out to her that she's studied so hard and... Even let it be known to the CP9 that she can read the Poneglyphs, which paints a big target on her now as well. But with Spandine panicking that he's in danger from the Buster call, he leaves everyone to save himself. And Robin finally gets to hold hands with her mom and her family, just like she imagined earlier. And it's incredibly touching that finally Robin gets to be with her family, no matter how short it is. As Saul then finally appears and Olvia asks him to protect Robin and get her off the island safely. As Olvia says, she has to stay behind to help preserve the history to ensure the future for Robin and the next generation. But boy, was Olvia and the other scholars really misguided in this, not knowing the full extent to what the world government was capable of with the Buster Call. As all this work they're doing to save the books was ultimately pointless. As we already know, the entire island gets wiped away. However, we'll see that some of the books do get saved. Actually, a good deal of them get saved. We do see that they get dumped into the little lake or pond outside of the tree. Uh, but the books are still in the custody of the world government, at least if they didn't destroy them afterwards or if they even bothered to recover them. I have a feeling that those books will come back in some way later, like a lot later. Otherwise, I don't know why Oda would pay such attention to showing the survival of those books. Like, there's a whole, like, like scene slash beat dedicated to showing that the books survived. I know some people may be frustrated and wondered why Olivia just didn't go with Robin, because this is precisely what I thought when I first read this. But upon further thought about this moment, I think Olivia already knew she and the island was doomed and that the only way to preserve their research and, and the hope for the future was to entrust it to Robin, who knew it all, including how to read the Poneglyphs, and the only way to get her out safely was staying away, as the Marines and the CP9 are already very familiar with Olvia, but not yet with Robin, so the best chance of her survival is to stay away from her. And bringing us full circle to one of the primary themes for every straw hat, and that is the theme of inherited will. Robin now has not only inherited her mother's will, but the hopes, dreams, and will of an entire country, and even potentially the world. Of course, we know what drives her, but in the present, we know that she has lost hope that this dream will ever be fulfilled. We now know the full weight of that line back in Arabasta, which just before she was saved by Luffy in the crumbling uh, catacombs, you know, the quote, I just wanted to learn the history, but my dreams has too many enemies. And that enemy she's referring to wasn't just crocodiles of the world or the underworld. It was literally the world itself. She was up against the world government, which is a heavy burden to shoulder for two decades for such a young girl who's been alone effectively her entire life. I mean, when you really start to put all these pieces together, 
Robin is one of the most heartbreaking and tragic characters of the Straw Hats. She has been in this hell since she was two years old. And in the present, she's 28 years old. That's 26 years of being alone without a family and 20 years on the run trying to do something that her family thought was going to help the world. But everywhere she turned, people either wanted to exploit her or kill her and get her bounty, telling her that her mere existence is the blight on the world, never having anyone she could trust. We now see why her nakama, the straw hats, means so much to her, enough to sacrifice her life. And this is the first and really only family she's ever really known. This right here is why the iconic scene later hits so damn hard. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Back to the story, Saul grabs Robin as he takes her away from Olvia, who screams for her to live. Then on their way to the evacuation ship, one of Kuzan's men sees Saul running on the island and informs him. All the while, Saul emphasizes to Robin that she should be proud of the scholars of Ohara and her mother, and that one day it will be up to her to see their dream through as we get a flashback within a flashback to when Saul was still a marine vice admiral. He orders an attack on Olvia's ship and captures her, killing all her fellow scholars in the process. However, Saul already shows concern that his soldiers are going too far and that they pose no threat and killing them wasn't necessary. Olvia angrily lectures Saul that it's wrong and ignorant to just blindly follow orders without even really understanding what their actions are actually doing. This puts Saul's already conflicted conscience in even more turmoil as once he gets assigned to be part of the buster call that will be eventually sent to Ohara, he protests Sengoku that this seems extreme for people who just genuinely just seem to want to learn the history of the world but gets shut down and is told to just follow the world government's orders. Saul then does something I think everyone in the world could do more of with an open mind. He actually commits to learning and discussing with the other side and makes up his own mind given all the information he learns from both angles. And so many times we as people get entrenched in our own opinions and worldviews that we can't accept new information from both sides. And we can't use critical thinking to actually come up with a reasonable conclusion rather than blindly accepting what they already know or have been told. The key, though, that Saul presents here is that it's being able to be humble with yourself and be willing to listen and be open to new information that doesn't necessarily conform to your already established conclusions. And after hearing what Olvia has to say, Saul breaks her out of prison and they both go on the run. And I just love Saul. Again, you know me. I have a soft spot for the Marines who have a good moral compass. He is through and through a genuinely good person, and he became a high-ranking Marine to protect and uphold the law, but he did that because he's always had a good sense of justice. But when the organization that he serves starts to move towards doing unjust things in the service of their own agenda, Saul can no longer be a part of that. And back in the present, we cut back to the Buster Call focusing their attacks on Saul and Robin. And like the Bamf he is, takes a cannonball directly to the face to protect Robin, Seeing that the nearby gunship is a danger to Robin, he goes on the offensive and freaking lifts the thing up and slams it down, showing off the strength of a former Marine Vice Admiral. And at this point, Saul's only goal is to draw the attention of all the gunships so that Robin can make it to the evacuation ship and escape safely. And when you see these events from an 8-year-old child who was already emotionally hurt from neglect, you really do understand the amount of trauma and P PTSD that Robin has endured and why it has instilled such crippling fear about the Buster Call. I mean, it's downright horrifying, but this isn't even the worst of it. 
Robin makes it to the evacuation ship, but the majority of the passengers and crew won't let her aboard because of the prejudice or fear that, especially with the powers that she has and the reputation she has. But there is one guy making the case for Robin being let on, and I'm pretty sure that guy is voiced by Zoro's voice actor, Nakai Kazuya. It's a fun little detail. It's not Zoro, just to be clear, but it, it's just a guy playing who plays Zoro. Um, but one thing about this, as I mentioned in the differences section, was they seem to leave out showing the citizens of Ohara reacting to Robin trying to get on the ship. In the manga, there are actually several panels dedicated to fully seeing their conversation and their faces as a debate whether to let her on. And they also show that same kid from the beginning of the flashback calling her a yokai again. The conversation in both the manga and the anime are the same. However, the anime shows this really weird over-the-shoulder view from Robin's perspective with the passengers kind of like barely visible on the ship for some weird reason. I don't know why this was done other than maybe budgetary reasons. Like they couldn't have enough time to animate the, the passengers. Not only that, but they cut out a bit where Robin actually tries to get herself on the boat by chaining her arms together with her powers but that gets stopped by Spandine telling everyone not to let her on and I for the life of me don't know why they cut this because that's what precipitated Spandine to sort of call out on the PA system to not let her on because in the anime he just kind of like sees her through the telescope and then just says don't let her on but in the in the manga, she actually tries to get on, which is, I think, what draws Spandai's attention. Anyways, things go from bad to worse as Kuzan arrives to stop Saul. And this whole scene hits really hard, especially upon rewatch after you've seen more events with the rest of the story play out because of just how important this exchange of dialogue and philosophies are, as well as the shocking thing that succeeds it. Saul tries to appeal to Kuzan that it isn't justice and what they're doing is wrong. However, Kuzan still being young and naive still believes in his sense of justice that what the world government says is the law and that these scholars in Ohara are breaking those laws. However, at least Kuzan does empathize with Saul and understands why he's doing what he's doing even if he believes it's wrong. Sometimes you have to break the laws to do what is right. And we've seen this time and again, particularly in U.S. history, especially during the civil rights movement where Black American citizens were systemically oppressed by laws, segregating them from equal rights, and those people who knew this was wrong had to oppose those racist laws in order to affect actual change for the better. Now, obviously, I'm not advocating for you to break laws all the time, but, you know, if it's an unjust law, sometimes there needs to be some sort of an opposition to it to make it apparent that these need to change. Anyways, however, during their debate, though, it's interrupted by the sudden explosion of the evacuation ship and this really shows just how evil or rather senseless and compassionless the Buster Call is and its real terror. It's an unthinking and unfeeling sort of action and it's just utter destruction. Saul and Robin are obviously horrified at what they just witnessed, but it even disturbs Kuzan saying that this isn't his sense of justice and that he wouldn't go as far as that quote idiot. And that idiot is none other than Vice Admiral Sakazuki who ordered the attack and while it's not mentioned in the anime, in the manga you do get a little bio bubble that explains that Sakazuki will one day become an admiral himself, of course being the future Akainu. Now canonically this is the first time we actually see Akainu, 
but we don't see his whole face. And in fact, he's played by a different voice actor than the one who will eventually become his iconic voice when he makes his proper introduction in the present. Now, Sakazuki represents the, that sort of the unfeeling sense of absolute justice. As he explains, in order to eradicate evil, there can be no doubt, even at the cost of anything, which is just crazy extreme to the point where we even see someone as corrupt as and evil as the CP9 and Spandine be shocked and horrified as that <laughs> as to go that far, which is really telling in terms of how extreme Sakazuki is. And it only fuels your imagination as to what this guy is like as a Marine Admiral Akainu in the present. Saul at this point is furious, yelling to Kuzan, demanding how can he still be proud to serve as a Marine even after this? They try to make a run for it, but Kuzan is just too powerful, and we come back full circle in understanding why Robin was so freaked out running into Aokiji in the present on Long Ring Longland. Seeing this kind of overwhelming power used on her friend, and a powerful one at that too, like she's seen how strong Saul is, and Aokiji or Kuzan just like incapacitate him like it's nothing. Saul is now trapped, but tells Robin to run, but Robin doesn't want to as she's afraid to be all alone, and this is another one of those iconic One Piece moments that lives in your head forever, especially if you've ever experienced feeling alone, and that feeling that you'll never be able to find anyone. Saul reassures Robin that the sea is vast, and that eventually, someday, she will meet Nakama who will protect her, and that, quote, no one is born into this world to be alone. And the way this line is delivered is just perfect, amazing voice acting here by Takeshi Kusao. Like, I just love how he delivers that line. And it will forever be ingrained in my head. And not just the, the scene itself, but the message behind it as well. And in an incredibly emotional moment, in his last dying words, he re-imparts the message that when they're going through a tough time... You have to laugh, and he does his iconic laugh, the dere shi 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 shi, as he's frozen solid by one his one-time friend, Kuzan, going out with the biggest smile true to his D name. And this scene always gets me because Oda has done such an amazing job building up all three of these characters. You see the fear and sadness in Robin, the hope and courage of Saul, as well as you get to hear the somber regret of Kuzan's voice as he says, Ice time. At, you know, at what he has to do to uphold his so-called justice. As by now, you can see that even Kuzan is questioning the morality of all of this, all accompanied by this sad yet hopeful score as we see the Tree of Knowledge fall with all the scholars awaiting their fates. Just a sad but beautiful scene. I can honestly say that I never get tired of watching this episode for many reasons, but this moment from Saul has helped me and I'm sure many other people persevere through many lonely times. I don't know anyone who hasn't at one time felt alone and unable to find friends or a significant other, and that loneliness can be crushing. It feels like you're floating in water drowning, but no matter how hard you try to swim up, it seems like you never get any closer to the surface as time just slowly runs out. And for me, anytime I feel like this, I always think back to this quote and Saul's philosophy of the fact that you will eventually meet someone who will care for you, protect you, and love you. You just have to stay positive and face life's hardship with a big old smile and laugh through it. I mean, it's such an amazing message and powerful moment. We see Robin run to the coast but is met by Kuzan, but instead the first thing out of his mouth is how absolute justice can drive people mad, most likely referring to Sakazuki, no doubt. Definitely, you will want to remember this for the future. 
But he then surprisingly decides to let Robin go, even effectively saving her life in order to honor what his friend Saul gave his life to protect. However, he promises to come after her if she ever steps out of line, which explains his sudden appearance in the present, as he's been tracking her whereabouts, I guess, for this whole time. While I think I cried harder for Nami and Chopper's flashback, Robin's flashback is by far the most heartbreaking, horrifically tragic of them all. As we see her home and everyone she's ever loved laid to waste behind her as she sort of floats all alone as she tries to comfort herself with Saul's laughing. But in this context, it's just so sad. Yet it's also a testament to Robin's strength that even after all this, she's still able to even try doing this. I mean, obviously she's in tears, but the, the strength she has to just even attempt this is incredible. But in the aftermath, we see why Robin at the age of eight got such an insane bounty of 79 million berries, all because of the threat she poses by being the last remaining person who can decipher the poneglyphs. We then see a montage of Robin hopping from one place to the next for food and shelter, being treated kindly at first, but never being able to stay very long before they eventually sell her out to the world government for her immense bounty, eventually turning to other criminals like pirates and ultimately searching for poneglyphs, which would lead her to join Crocodile and the Baroque Works at the age of 16, becoming his right-hand woman as Miss All Sunday. With all this, you really do see why she's got such trust issues, but even worse is that she's now found Nakama, a true family she can finally trust, but is now under the threat of her worst nightmare. What at first was that sort of annoying feeling when Robin kept refusing to come back with the Straw Hats on multiple occasions now is completely understandable to the point where it seems obvious. It also shows why she's so adamant about not calling the Buster call because she knows that no one on this island, including Spandam himself, will be safe from it. Robin then makes it clear what her motivations have been, and most of all, she's scared that the one group of people she's finally able to trust and loves will eventually abandon her like all the other so-called good-meaning people were from the past. In her mind, no matter how good-willed they are, now the Straw Hats will eventually grow tired of the constant attacks from the insurmountable enemy that is the world government, and will eventually abandon her. She then states that if that's her fate, she'd rather die here and now. And I get that. I really do get that feeling. Not the dying part, but... Like, I don't know about you, but I really felt that often we don't want to let our guard down and trust people for fear of them abandoning us, so we don't even try to let them in before they can even hurt us. And I know I've certainly felt this sort of pessimistic idea about love and dating many times in my life that it really is easy to fall into this mindset and I myself am currently trying to climb out of that but it's hard but as a message to myself and everyone out there don't give up on trying as Robin will show you but also you know just if you are in even more distress beyond just friends and relationships and are in danger of self-harm or suicide ideations definitely seek out help or call your local suicide hotline there are people that care about you and want to help you now armed with that understanding though all the straw hats finally see the full picture and now know exactly what they need to do leading to the epic conclusion of the most iconic moment in one piece thus far the moment is finally here, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're ready to have your mind blown as, and just how amazing this moment is. And I definitely was not ready for this at the time. 
So after Spandam boasts about the might of the world government and what they face by protecting Robin, but to Luffy, he understands exactly what he needs to do now to help Robin. He then calmly orders Soge King to shoot down the world government flag, which Soge King just, just as calmly complies with his brand new weapon, the Kabuto, and sets the flag ablaze with the Firebird Star, thereby declaring war on the world government themselves, which is utterly crazy. And one detail that's often overlooked about this moment is that there's no fear or pushback from Soge King slash Usopp about doing such a crazy and dangerous thing. And for that matter, nothing from Nami or Chopper either, who under a lot of circumstances would at least protest when Luffy decides to do something so extremely crazy and dangerous, usually in a comedic way, you know, with like the big white eyes and the sharp teeth or a terrified open jaw face. But here... They all understand and are willing to do anything to get their Nakama back and therefore stand there quietly and bravely with them all prepared to lay their lives down for Robin, which is such a great character detail on all their parts. Spandan freaking out at them that they're just crazy making an enemy of the world government and Luffy's response is just incredible. And of course, Mayumi Tanaka once again knocks it out of the park with the Bring it on or Nazama Takorada! And it's not over yet as Luffy then yells to Robin to finally say her real wish to say that she wants to live. And holy shit, this is such an incredible scene as the music begins to swell as we're reminded everything Robin has endured throughout her life finally convinced that she does deserve to live and that she's allowed to actually voice her real inner wish. Then she cathartically and finally screams out, I want to live or ikitai and then please take me out to the sea with you and god damn like holy hell this is like release of pure emotion and tension is just unbelievable something that has been building for well over a hundred episodes is finally released the significance of those specific words is huge too as this is something Ovia repeatedly said to Robin that she wishes for is to live and up till now she's been denying the one thing that her mother had wished for her because of the guilt that's been building inside Robin her entire life. I mean the girl has had to live with immense abuse, trauma, PTSD and severe survivor's guilt. It's no wonder she can't trust and has felt she more than anyone deserves to die. But I also love that moment where over Saul's last words that the sea is vast and that eventually she will find Nakama who will protect her, and it flashes to the shots of each Straw Hat member. I mean, it's a nice touch in the anime. There is a moment like this in the manga, but it's a group shot. But I love that the anime takes the time to show each one of them individually. And this moment will forever go down as one of, if not the best moment of the series. In my mind, so far, nothing has topped this. That's not to say that there won't, there haven't been other epic moments or that it won't ever be beat out. But... This will always forever live in my heart as the best moment in the series due to the way it builds up and ties so many story threads and themes together, as well as finally filling in the mystery of Robin that has left us frustrated this whole time. This episode ends with them all finally preparing for battle as Luffy strikes his iconic fist pump pose and yells to everyone, let's go, or ikuzo, and it's just like, ah, so perfect. And yeah, I love this. It's such a great episode. 
And then we move on to the Frankie family finally managing to get the drawbridge to come down, but it stopped halfway as Baskerville orders them to destroy the mechanisms, and it stops at sort of the halfway mark. But Kokoro and Luffy being kind of on the crazy same wavelength have the same idea as they jump with the idea that Rocketman will catch them. So Luffy wraps everyone up and jumps off the tower, freaking everyone out. However, at this point... The anime, unfortunately, goes into filler mode, um, I think, because they needed to extend the distance between the anime and the manga because they've just been kind of going straight up since Water 7 started with very few sort of filler moments. So from episodes 279 through 283, the next five episodes are literal clip episodes chronicling each Straw Hat member's journey up till now. However, at the end of each episode, there are these sort of mini shorts referred to as the Straw Hat Theater shorts that are actually adapted from material Oda wrote himself, and they appear in these sort of Shonen Jump One Piece log volumes, which are essentially Shonen Jump volumes, but they consist entirely of One Piece chapters instead of sort of the normal uh, Shonen Jump volumes where they have one chapter from each of their series in the comics. And in between, to fill the space between the chapters, Oda was asked by his editors to write something to fill that space that would normally be filled with things like the SBS or the Usopp's Gallery at the end. And the story goes that each time they make one of these logs, the the his editors hand him three blank pages and asks him to come up with something. And he just kind of like writes and draws random stuff, <laughs> which is why these are all so weird. The characters are also often drawn in their sort of chibi forms, giving it this sort of really cute and comedic look. So in episode 279, we get Chopper Man, which is just Chopper being a superhero against sort of a um, Usopp being the villain. And this one's all right. Um, 280, we get report time, which is an interview format of each crew member about Luffy's eating habits before Sanji joins, which is pretty entertaining. And then we have 281, which is probably the weirdest one called Obahan time or Obahan meaning like um, or Obasan, you know, the old lady. And so Oda's idea is what would the, the straw heads be like if they were all old women? And this one's just weird. And then we get 282, No Honor Time. And this one's probably my favorite one of the five. This one seems, sees them all as Yakuza bosses fighting for control of the island, but they all end up killing each other, leaving Don Lufion alone, miserable eating meat in front of the graves of the other Straw Hats. But it turns out this is a dream of those sentient Moai statues that appear at the very beginning, which is just so random. And then finally, 283, Monster Time. Sees them all depicted as mythical monsters from various folklore. Um, yeah, these are all pretty funny. They're just like two and a half to three minute little short vignettes at the end of each of these sort of clip episodes. And then during this little mini section of these five episodes, there is a change in opening themes as well as the ending of the ending themes. So during the recap episodes, uh, 279 through 283, they use this newish opening theme of the um, Straw Hat version of We Are. So we have all the cast of the Straw Hats. They are actually singing We Are, and it's overlaid on top of the animation from the original We Are. And this is also the first time that there is no ending theme, and thus beginning the practice of removing the ending in favor of having a slightly longer opening theme, which will then continue until this day, actually. There's not been an ending theme for One Piece since this moment. 
But phew, that was a lot. And that was quite a few episodes. And, you know, that I want to live moment will always be in my mind and most likely your mind as well, as you never forget when you read or saw that moment for the first time. But yeah, with that, we can finally move into the battles. So, starting next podcast, it's the Straw Hat Pirates versus the CP9. I cannot wait to get into the battles. But yeah, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. I really appreciate that. And also check out my Instagram and Twitter account at SunnyGoPodcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see pictures of my manga collection. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. There will be a spoiler section after this. Um, but if you're not interested in that, stay safe out there. And I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye. Alrighty, so spoiler section. Um, obviously, this is going to be largely unscripted. But th- the two main things that I really wanted to talk about are Kuzan and Sakazuki or Aokiji and Akainu. As we see, they both went in very different directions. And a lot of it all stems from this very moment in this flashback. We see already their clash of ideologies. You know, with Kuzan being sort of the more honorable and good-natured Marine he, we see that he eventually has a falling out after Sengoku retires. We see that Sengoku re- recommended Kuzan to be to take his place as the fleet admiral, and then Sakazuki, the Gorose, wanted Sakazuki because obviously he does exactly what the Gorose want them to do, and so we then see sort of that clash of ideology, and eventually him losing out to Sakazuki makes him quit the Marines, which is similar to what Saul did and what's even weirder though is is that Kuzan you know he's now part of the Blackbeard Pirates which is really unexpected because you know I don't really know how to take that because I always figured Kuzan was a good guy and for him to side with Blackbeard who I personally think is the ultimate bad guy in the series that the thing that Luffy has to face at the very end um joining Joining him is just really weird. But then we see Sakazuki's in sort of his absolute justice. And, you know, seeing him become who he is is pretty, pretty stark. And, you know, seeing him blow the ship of evacuees up is just, I mean, that move is just incredibly extreme and just horrifying. And you really get a sense of who Sakazuki is. And true to his form, he is exactly how you would expect him to be when you see him finally in the in the Marine Ford, you know, the Summit War. And yeah, he has no mercy or anything. I mean, he was literally ready to kill Kobe until Shanks arrived. And he just kept sending his men to die even though the war was over. And you see just the ruthlessness of him. And I think, again, Sakazuki is also one of those sort of main antagonists at the end of the series, I think. Not the ultimate bad guy. I, like I said, I still think that's going to be Blackbeard. But Sakazuki is definitely going to be something that uh, Luffy is going to have to overcome. Or perhaps, maybe, you know, I, maybe Luffy doesn't defeat Sakazuki and, and that will be left to Sabo. Uh, who knows? Um, the last thing I kind of wanted to mention in this spoiler section, and this is not really that big of a deal, but I noticed in the um, in one of the shorts... 
you see um, in the Chopper Man short, you see the Luffy bomber design. And it looks oddly similar to Frankie's design post-time skip. And you see with those big bulbous shoulders and sort of that big, heavy, top-heavy look with the tiny legs. I mean, it's a dead ringer for how Frankie ends up looking. So it seems like Oda had the design for Frankie a long time and just kind of like adapted it so that it would fit Frankie. But yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing that I had not really noticed until I just rewatched these because I often skip these five episodes, so I don't even see the shorts um, very often. But yeah, um, other than that, that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. So I hope you have a great rest of the week and I will catch you on the next episode. See ya. See ya.